All right, everybody, it's good to be with you guys tonight. I want to invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark this evening. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Together, we're jumping back into the scriptures, going verse by verse. <coughs> Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read you a couple of verses, and then we'll talk about it here for just a second. I'm going to give some context. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus was speaking to the disciples and he said to them, truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And Jesus is not speaking about the second coming here. He's talking about the events that are about to take place. He looks at his disciples and he says, hey, some of you guys that are standing here right now, you're not going to die until you see with your eyes the kingdom of God and it's going to come and you're going to see it in power. Right, so let's, uh, let's uh, look at verse 2 there. He says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And we come tonight to the story of the transfiguration. If you've spent any time in church growing up, you've probably heard this taught on or you've read it before. But it's a story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, just the three of them, he takes them up on the high mountain, and the scripture says he was transfigured before them. Now, that word in the Greek is the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get our English, uh, English word metamorphosis. And I have no idea why they translated that word uh, transfigured, but they did. Because the point is, is that Jesus takes him up on the mountain and experiences a physical metamorphosis, a physical transformation right in front of their eyes. Jesus takes him up on the mountain. And the first thing he does is he changes his appearance. Now, he, and hear this. He changes an appearance from uh, God in the flesh who looks like a man, which is the way he'd looked for the last 30-something years of his life. He changed his appearance from God in the flesh who looked like a man to God in the flesh who looked like God. That was his appearance change. And he did this in front of Peter, James, and John for a couple of very specific reasons. One, he was giving them a glimpse of the future. He was giving them a glimpse of the future, some things that were about to take place. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. And, but two, he was letting them see with their own eyes who he really was. He was revealing to them that he was not just a carpenter from Nazareth, but he was, in fact, God of the universe. He had shared that with them before. And Peter had just confessed that he actually believed this. But he took him up on the mountain and he showed them with their own eyes. Uh, the story of the transfiguration, the way it kind of works and the purpose of it, really the best way to describe it, it's kind of like a movie trailer. Now, movie trailers, when the company that makes a movie, they take all the best parts of the movie, they run them together, and they put some music over it, and they put it in little snippets, and you'll watch it, and the idea being that, that you'll buy into the movie, that you'll get excited about it. Um, you know, you ever been to a movie, and they show all the previews at the beginning, and there's a particularly really good trailer they show? What is it that you turn over to the person you came to the movie with? What do you say to them? You say, hey, I'm, just, I'm seeing that movie. That's the purpose of the trailer, and that's what Jesus is doing here. It, uh, it, I, I was thinking about, like, what's the coolest trailer I've ever seen in my life, just to prove this point. And I was thinking about Star Wars Episode One. Now, a lot of you guys may be too young to really have been into that. But when I was growing up, they released 4, 5, and 6. And that was a big deal for kids, you know, in my age, growing up in the 70s and 80s. And I had everything. I had the Star Wars figures and the lunchboxes and the sheets and all that stuff. And I was into it. And so when, in 1986, when, they, when I was in the sixth grade, when they showed the last one, we, we grieved. Me and my buddies, we grieved. It was bad. And every guy that grew up in my generation, we dreamed about the possibility that maybe one day George Lucas would make some sequels, or as it turns out, prequels to Star Wars. 
And in the mid-90s, there were some rumors that started circulating that he was going to make some new movies. And I think it was in 1999, I think, the trailer for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, came out. And me and my buddies all huddled around that old computer and the dial tone thing was kind of coming up while it was loading up the old video. And, and, the, and the preview started. And, and the first thing out of the blocks, you see Darth Maul. Now, if you don't know who Darth Maul is, he's one of the characters, it doesn't matter. But he had a red face and horns. And he pulls out this lightsaber. And all of a sudden, this one, one side of the lightsaber came out. And we are like, whoa, right? It's really cool. But we'd seen that before because that's what Luke Skywalker, he does one side of a lightsaber, Darth Vader had one lightsaber, and then all of a sudden, this other side of the lightsaber comes, and we're like, whoa! And we're screaming, and we're hugging, and we're high-fiving, and one of my buddies just cries, oh, it's so good. <laughs> and we were in, and we were in, and we went to the midnight showing, and yes, anyway, that's the purpose of a good trailer. It's to get you to buy in. That's what Jesus is doing, just for lack of better words. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he brings them up on the mountain, and he shows them the trailer. He shows them these awesome little snapshots of who he is and what he's about to do. Now, there's three things that Jesus reveals about himself to us and to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're going to talk about two of them tonight. We'll talk about one next week. But here's the first thing that Jesus reveals to us and to, and to the disciples on that mountain. Here's number one. Jesus was revealing to them that he was not just a man made of flesh, but that he was God in the flesh. He was revealing to them he wasn't just a man made of flesh, but he was God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 tells us, talks about it. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul says all the fullness of who God was dwelt in the man, the person of Jesus Christ. A little systematic theology lesson for you is that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. He was 100% man, 100% God. He wasn't 50% of each. He was 100% both. That's what the scripture teaches and that's what Jesus is revealing to them. Now let's look here at Mark chapter 9 verse 3 as Jesus begins to play this out and reveal to them, hey boys, I'm God. Here he is, Mark chapter 9 verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. The first thing Mark says is verse 3. It says, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <clears throat> and so Mark is explaining what happens. He brings him up. Scripture says he has this physical metamorphosis. And the first thing that Mark describes about Jesus is he's wearing really, really white clothes, whiter than anybody on earth could make them. Now, why is that significant? That Jesus was wearing white clothes. Well, there's a couple things. One is that white is the biblical symbol of purity and holiness. Biblical symbol of purity and holiness. And so Mark making the statement, hey, this is whiter than anybody on the earth could make it, has spiritual significance because he's making the point that Jesus was wearing some garments that represented his holiness that was so big and so high that nobody on earth can attain it. Okay, so that's the first thing. Picture of holiness and purity. And number two... Over and over in the book of Revelation, which is a future vision of heaven that you and I are in, which is pretty neat. If you want to know what heaven's going to look like, Revelation describes it. But over and over again in the book of Revelation, the scripture describes that you and I are going to be wearing white when we get to heaven. In Revelation 4, 4, there's a couple of verses here. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. 
And that's the elders, and we don't know who they are. There's Jesus, and there's the Father, and then there's 24 thrones, and the elders, whoever they are, and they're all going to be wearing white. And then in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, There was given to each of them, this is talking about the martyrs, the people that are going to give their life, those of us who will give our life for the faith of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, it says, There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And that's a pretty cool verse, that if you give your life up for Jesus Christ, if you die because of your faith, you get to hang out with Jesus by the throne. You get a white robe and you just get to chill. And that sounds pretty cool to me. In the Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, this is when you and I come into the picture who aren't going to get martyred. And it says, after these things, I look, this is John speaking, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, this is heaven, by the way, and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. And so here's the point is that you're going to be wearing white and I'm going to be wearing white and the martyrs and the elders, everybody is wearing white and Jesus was wearing white. And so the point is this, is that he was wearing his heavenly clothes and they represented a purity and a holiness that no man can attain. But that's not the only thing that Mark describes and, and Matthew who also wrote about the transfiguration describes about what happened in that moment and how he was revealing his, his God. Turn to Matthew chapter 17 real quick. Matthew chapter 17 verse 1. See how Matthew describes the scene. Watch what he says. Six days later, he took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. Now watch this. He says, his face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. Now that, that statement has massive significance. The word shone there is translated from the Greek verb lampo. It means to produce light. To produce light, something that produces light. The scripture makes the statement that his face was producing light. And that's significant. Now, why, church, is that significant that Jesus' face was producing light? And you remember the story of Moses and God on Mount Sinai? Remember that back in the Old Testament? God brings Moses up on the mountain. He's going to give him the Ten Commandments. He tells him he's going to deliver his people and give him the promised land. And they're having this cool moment. God's in a flame of fire and Moses is on the ground with his shoes off because it's holy and, and they're having this intimate kind of moment there and God's like, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to be for you. I'm for you, for your people. I'm going to speak through you. Everything's going to be great. And Moses makes this incredibly bold request of God in that moment. Moses says to the Lord, God, this is great. These Ten Commandments, these are awesome. It's awesome that you're going to deliver us out of slavery and into the promised land. God, that's amazing. But then he says to the Lord, he says, God, I want something. More than these Ten Commandments, more than the promised land, there's something I want. He says, God, I want to see your face. He said, God, I want to see your face. He says, Lord, I just want to see it. He said, Lord, will you show me your glory? And then God says to Moses something really interesting. He says, Moses, I can't show you my face. It's because I am holy and because you are sinful. If you see my face, if you see the fullness of my glory, you're going to die. Because God says nobody can see my face and live. And so what God does, because Moses had this longing to have this face-to-face -face intimacy with God, what God did is he took Moses, he put him in the cleft of the rock, he covered 
Moses with his hand and he walked by. And the scripture says that Moses got to see a little bit of God's back. And what happened in that moment is, is kind of weird. It's some of the glory of God from God's back got on Moses' face. And he walks down the mountain and the scripture says that Moses' face was shining because it was reflecting the glory of God. And it was so bright. People were like, hey, put some over your face, man. You're blinding me because he was reflecting the glory of God. Now listen again to what Jesus says or whether what Matthew says about Jesus in Matthew 17 too. Scripture says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Verse said Jesus' face was producing light like the sun produces light. Now this is significant for this reason because when Moses was on the mountain, hear this. When Moses was on the mountain with God, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon doesn't reflect, or rather the moon doesn't produce light, the moon reflects light. The moon doesn't produce its own glory. The moon reflects the glory of the sun. And that's what Moses did. He reflected the glory of God. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus wasn't reflecting the glory of God like Moses. Jesus was producing the glory of God. The glory of God was emanating from him. And that's why John, who was on the mountain there, when he was writing his gospel... In John chapter 1, verse 14, this is why he said this. In John chapter 1, 14, he said, And the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, they got to see what Moses longed to see, but God wouldn't let him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples got to see what the prophets had longed to see for generations, but God wouldn't let them. Through the person of Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John got to see the face of God. And what's amazing is they did not die. Now, Jesus is clearly revealing to them that I'm not just a person that reflects the glory of God. The glory of God comes from me. He's displaying to them that he is God and they... And he let him see his face. But the other thing I think that Jesus, and this is when it really kind of starts hitting home for us, is what Jesus also reveals to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration besides the fact that he is God is that through him, through the person of Jesus, we can regain, we can capture and have again what is the deepest longing of the human heart. And the deepest longing of the human heart is a face-to-face relationship and embrace with their creator. You see, the, the encounter between God and Moses is significant because it reveals the greatest conundrum that you and I will ever face. And that's just like Moses, you and I, we long for a relationship with God. We long for the face of God. We long for the embrace of God. It is the deepest longing of the human heart. It is why, and we know this because it's why you're, you're, you're alive. It's why you exist. It's why you were born. It's why God created you to be in this face-to-face, intimate, loving relationship and embrace with your creator. But because of our sin, we cannot have it. The reason we long for the embrace of God so much is because in the garden we had it. In the garden of Eden we had it. 
Adam and Eve were created by God. He created them for fellowship with him. And they walked every day with God. They talked every day with God. They saw his face. They were with him. They lived with him. They hung out. The God of the universe, for crying out loud, how cool would that have been? And they're just doing that. But then sin entered in the picture. And this face-to-face relationship we had with our creator was ripped from us because of our sin. And the moment that happened, it created in all of us a void. And most of us, the truth is, most of us spend our entire lives trying to fill that void that we lost in the garden, which is face-to-face relationship with the living God. Have you ever noticed that void's in you? I have. Have you ever noticed that there is a longing inside of you that, that never quite seems to go away? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that it's in there. I mean, think about it. Have you ever wondered why we long for the approval of people? Have you ever wondered that? Where does that come from? Why do we want to be approved of by people so much? Why do we want to be applauded? Why is that so important to us? Why do, we, why do we want people to notice us and notice our work? Why do we care about that kind of stuff? Why does it hurt so bad when people don't notice us and don't approve us? Where is that coming from in us? Have you ever wondered why? I was thinking about this a lot this week just as I was pre- preparing to preach for this, but have you ever wondered why it doesn't matter how many friendships you have? You always, there's always this little part of you that doesn't feel completely known. You're gonna, a lot of you guys, when you get married, you're gonna, you're gonna realize this because it's the same thing so many people fall in. They have that need and that longing that comes from what they lost with the relationship with God, that voice there, and they think, oh, I'm gonna get married and that's gonna be it and it's gonna be amazing and, and this girl or this guy is gonna meet every longing in my heart and you, you get married and they're great and they're awesome and it's fun, it's amazing, you love them, but there's still that longing there. Where did that come from? Have you ever wondered why we want so badly to be loved? You ever thought about that? Why do we hunger for that? Is it just some byproduct of evolution that we want to be loved? Or is that need to be loved there because we were once experiencing the love of the greatest lover in the universe, but it has been taken from us? See, we, uh, we all, we all have that inconsolable longing in us and we seek to fulfill it in art in romance, in sex, pornography, food, work, exercise, marriage, children. It's a thousand ways we try to fill that longing in us, but no matter what I'm finding in life is no matter what we accumulate in treasure, in relationship, that longing remains. It's there. C.S. Lewis talked about this longing in one of his most famous sermons, it's called The Weight of Glory. And I just want to read you a little small quote from this sermon. And ADD people, pay attention because he's really smart, all right? So you can't just breeze through this. You got to focus, all right? Here we go. <coughs> There's a sense that in the universe, we are treated as strangers. We all have the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. That is part of our inconsolable secret. There is hope in each of us that the door, listen, this is so cool, that the door on which we've been knocking all our lives will at last be open. 
And then this lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off will be satisfied. At present, we are outside the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. But someday, God willing, we shall get in. Amen. All of us have that longing, and the reason that longing is in you is because it can only be satisfied in one place, and that is the face-to-face embrace of the one who created you. It's the only place. And you can try wherever you want to try. It will not work. But there's a problem, right? We're sinners. We're sinners. We, we are sinful people, and God is utterly, completely holy. And so we can't just approach God anymore. Do you remember what the scripture says? What happens when sinful people encounter a holy God? There's two things. There's only two things that happen when sinful people encounter a holy God. One we've already talked about. The scripture says, you die. God, I just, this is all great what you're giving me. I just want to see your face. No, you'll die. So transcendent is his majesty, so profound is his holiness that when we even get in his presence and we see his face, we die. There's stories all through the Old Testament of people that, that, that see the face of God and they kind of mess around with God's presence. Boom, they just die. And so that's the first thing. And the second thing you see this more often is when people just get around the proximity of God's presence or they hear his voice, it completely just freaks them out. They get scared to death that's what Isaiah, that's probably the most famous one, is Isaiah chapter 6. He has this vision, and in the vision he hears the voice of the Lord. Do you all remember his response? He just heard the voice of God. He didn't see God. Isaiah just hit the ground. He hit the ground, and he starts crying out, Woe is me! And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That when this sinful man encountered perfect holiness, the first thing he became aware of was his sin. He hears the voice of God. He drops on the ground. He says, oh, God. He starts confessing sin to the Lord. You see the distance between the sin and the holiness there. That's exactly what's about to happen here in this story. See, because so far, Jesus has has been there. In just a second, Elijah and Moses are going to pop up on the scene on the mountain. And I'm going to talk more about that next week because that has significance. Just didn't have time tonight. And Peter just thinks it's awesome. He thinks it's the greatest thing. But then God the Father shows up and starts talking. Watch what happens. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. That's tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This cracks me up. And they're up on the, the mountain, Jesus just turned. You know, he's wearing white, his face is shining like the sun. And then Elijah and Moses show up, and Peter, you know Peter, man, he starts talking. And Peter, Peter says, this is awesome. This is great. It's good to be here. Let's make some tabernacles. Look at verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a lot of times that's how God shows up on the scene in a cloud. God the Father. 
A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now let's just stop right there. God's not going Old Testament on him right here. He's not like, shut up, Peter. You know, he, <laughs> he's not calling down lightning on him, sinners. You know, he's not doing that. He just kind of shows up and says, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Exact same response. Exact same response that every single person has had when they encountered the presence of God since Adam and Eve first sinned. God speaks, and they were terrified. Church, the deepest longing of the human heart is to be face-to-face with God, to be in his presence, to experience his embrace, but because of our sin, we cannot. It's impossible. So we're in an impasse, right? We need a mediator. It is, I'm telling you, it is the deepest longing of our heart, but we can't even approach God without falling on our faces. Somebody has to step in the middle. Somebody has to mediate. Somebody has to build a bridge between us and God so that the deepest longing of our heart can finally be fulfilled with the face and the embrace of our Father. And so I want you to listen because something amazing is about to happen. The Father speaks, the disciples hit the ground in fear. I want you to look at how Jesus responds to it. Watch what he does. In verse 5, it says, We were still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them. Okay, now you think about it. It's the first thing Jesus does when these sinful people encounter a holy God and they hit the ground, scared to death. What does he do? He walks over to them. He didn't say, hey, get up. He walks over to them and he puts his hands on them. He touches them. And then he says, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Man, they did the right thing. God spoke, they hit the ground, and they were terrified. But Jesus, God in the flesh, walks to them, touches them, lifts them off the ground, and says to them, don't be afraid. And then everything else disappears, and they lift up their eyes, and all they see is the face of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus was showing us. And the disciples in that moment. Yes, I am God. But you don't have to be afraid anymore. Yes, I am God. But you can touch me. And I'm going to touch you. Yes, I'm God. But my holiness is no longer going to knock you down. I'm going to lift you up so that you can be holy just like me. Yes, I'm God, 
but now when you look upon my face, it's not going to kill you. Now when you look upon my face, it's going to give you life and it's going to fulfill every longing of your heart. You see, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was doing so much more than giving them an opportunity to believe in his divinity. They already believed in his divinity. Peter just said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God a few days before. What Jesus was doing on the mountain was giving them a foretaste of what C.S. Lewis said is the deepest longing of our heart, which is the face and the embrace of God. And guys, this is my story, man. When I read this and I figured out what this was saying, I'm like, this is right. It is the deepest longing of our heart. Jesus is the way. When I was in high school, I was a miserable young man. And I was, I was the guy, I was the cliche. I grew up in the Baptist church and, and, and trusted in Christ as an eight-year-old. And, and, and I was the guy that just went like crazy. And I'm telling you, I can look back at the reason I was doing all the stuff I was doing is because I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought it was what I wanted. It's not what I needed. I thought that's what life was about. And so first semester of my freshman year in college, I finally got one of the things I'd always wanted for. I always wanted to be popular in high school, just wasn't popular. And just something crazy happened and just kind of had a little modicum of popular. Popularity in my freshman year in college. Girls never really paid any attention to me. Freshman year, girls started paying attention. I had all the things, got the major I wanted, was making the grades, got everything that I thought I wanted. I was like lifting up on this pedestal that I thought, oh, I really need that, really want that. I got it. And just for lack of better words, I was miserable. So cliche. It was just like, oh, there's got to be more to life than this. That was me. And I had this buddy of mine that kept bugging me to go to this Bible study. It was on Tuesday night. And my church growing up was just, God bless, I love my church, but it was, it was just one of those lifeless churches. It was dead. I had never experienced the tangible, physical, manifest presence of God. I just never felt it ever. And I walked into the door of this place. In the, in the spirit of God, for lack of better words, now that I've been doing this for about 20 years, I kind of know it's just the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit was so thick in, the, in that place, you had to brush him away with your face or with your hand out of your face. It was just like something you walked in the door and you felt it. And I walked in and they were singing this old school Christian hymn, Lord, you are more precious than silver. And Lord, you are more costly than gold. And Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds and nothing I desire compares to you. And that miserable 19-year-old kid, tears started running down his face because I was in the presence of the Lord and I was getting satisfied in ways and in places that I didn't know I could. And I remember I remember thinking this thing, this thought went through my head. I remember it like it was yesterday. I can see what I was looking at. This is what went through my mind in that moment as I was singing this song and experiencing the presence of God for the first time in my life. It just went through my head. I remember thinking, this is what I've been looking for all my life. And that night I started to follow Jesus. And I've never turned back. And I never will. Because he and he alone was able to meet that need in me. Now here's the thing. I know in a group this size, there's got to be people in this room that are tired and weary of going after stuff that you know will not meet that longing. Tonight, you come to Jesus. You run like 
crazy as fast as you can to Jesus. You say, Father, I want to see your face. But this time, because of Jesus, the answer is not going to be no. The answer is going to be yes. And it'll change your life. Let's pray. Father, we too often take for granted that we can just come into a place like this and sing, talk to you, go boldly before your throne. Sinful people, and and we forget that we can do that because of our pardon that was purchased by Jesus on the cross, that your wrath was satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today, tonight, we can just run to the throne. We can throw ourselves down there, and we can have the deepest needs of our hearts satisfied in you. That's unbelievable. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Father, I pray right now, just lift them up. Anybody in this room who's running after stuff and they know in their heart it's not what they need, I pray that tonight they would run to you. That you'd receive them, meet them right where they're at, forgive them, love them, call their name, capture their hearts, change their lives, change their kids' lives, their grandkids' lives. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's been the greatest thing in my life, Jesus, knowing you. It really has. I love you. It's in your name we pray.